This morning, I want to just encourage you from the Word of God. I am preaching through the book of Romans. I'm behind Rick Holland, but uh, I'm picking up the pieces that he left. Of course, our church doesn't know that he left any, and I don't think he does. He's a thorough expositor of the Word of God. But I have been enjoying, and we, our church has been enjoying, the chapter 4 of the book of Romans. And the thing that impressed me is that Paul starts out and he says, you know, there's salvation by no other way than putting your full trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. And he uses the example of Abraham and he said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And that's all he did. He just believed God. And then he uses the example of David who says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. And then in the next line, he says, it isn't due to any kind of religious right, and he uses circumstance, circum, not circumstance, circumcision as an example of really uh, that you can't be saved by baptism, Lord's communion, or anything else that a church may do as a right. It's saved by faith alone. And then he moved on, as we taught last Sunday, it's not by law either. It's not by law keeping for uh, nobody would be saved if it were up to that. He's already proved that in chapter 3, that the law couldn't save anyone. And so then uh, next week, I want to get into the story of Abraham, and I love that story, where God said, Abraham, move, and Abraham moved. He didn't say, where to? He didn't say, how far? He said, pack up, and I'll just get up and move out of Ur of the Chaldees, and I'll show you. And this wasn't any small move. He moved his family. He, was, uh, he had enough people around him to actually take an army of 300 men plus cattle and all that kind of stuff. Moving wasn't just putting a little U-Haul behind his pickup and hauling and going somewhere. It was a massive operation, but he actually got up and he left. Well, that's not, all this is not what I'm preaching on. I just said that to say this. I want to show you an example of faith by David. And I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and I want to tell you an old, old story this morning for our encouragement, for our strength. David and Goliath. I figured that isn't preached on too much here. Not that it wouldn't be, but that generally people come and little would they hold a grand old story of David and Goliath. I've loved it since the first time I heard it as a child, whenever that was. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, this story is uh, told of David. I think sometimes we get the idea that people in the Bible are spiritually Holy Ghost uh, people that are way above the rest of us, but you know, they're ordinary Joes just like us. They have the same passions as James tells us in chapter 5 of Elijah, he was a man of like passions, just like you and I are. They're just like us. And yet they were used of God, and somehow we think of people who are used by God, they must have gone to seminary, they must have a Ph.D. degree or something else. But really, no. And when I've met the big people of, of Christian world and the VIPs of the Christian world, and when I get down and sit down with them, they're just like us. Like the old football thing, they put their pants on just like we do. And that's just the ordinary common guy. 
and gal. And so David was too. We read now, we beginning with chapter 17 and verse 1, we see the circumstances and we look at a battlefield here. Now the, Philist the Philistines had gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah and Ephesdamim. Saul and his men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up battle array to encounter the Philistines. Now the Philistines had been beaten badly in chapter 14 of this book, and they had taken heavy losses. But now they've regrouped, and again they come at Israel again. Enemies have a way of doing that. You may, they may receive a defeat, but they always, especially against us, who want to serve God, they seem to always regroup and come in another form. This took place in the valley of Elah, about 17 miles southwest of Jerusalem, in a valley that started out at Hebron and moved down toward the Mediterranean Sea. And it was about a mile wide at this juncture, and it had a canyon within it about 20 feet across. And the Israelites were led by Saul, were camped on one side, and the Philistines on the other. In verse 3 we read the scene. The Philistines took on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between. Now let's take a look at the characteristics of this army in verses 4 to 11. And we see the Philistines in verses 4 to 10. Then a champion came out of the army of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. Now, as they come together, this was a common practice in the ancient Near East. There were on times when they would have battles with each other, which we would call combat representatives. And so they chose a man who was Goliath. Why wouldn't you choose him? If you had a basketball team, he would be number one on your draft. He was nine foot six and appears to be a descendant of the gigantic sons of Anak. His coat of mail, that was that he wore, protection was 125 pounds, if we understand the right size of a shekel. His spear head was 15 pounds. This was some kind of guy. He didn't have to dunk the ball. I mean, you just had to throw it near the basket and he could, he could zoom it in. He was a monster of a man. He had a man holding a shield in front of him, walking before him. This way he could use his arms and his legs and he could carry on the battle. Now there were, in Joshua's day, in Joshua eleven twenty two, there were no Anakim left in the day of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza and in Ashdod some remained. However, in the days of David, there was still a remnant of this tribe left in the southwest corner of Israel. We note his arrogance. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come out to draw in a battle array? 
Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then I'll become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will become our servants and serve us. Pretty clear battle line. Something we could use today. We go into battle, we don't even know why we go into battle anymore. We read here, and again the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Song we just sang in the service kind of fits this, doesn't it? In 1 Kings 20, verse 11, we read, in one day about a braggart, about Ben-Hadad, the, Assyr the Assyrian king, who came to the king of the northern country of Israel, the northern nation, and he said, I'm going to wipe you guys clean. I'm going to wipe you guys off the map. And Ahab said one good thing at least. He said in 1 Kings 20, 11, the king of Israel replied, Tell him, let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. Leave your bragging till the end of the battle. Leave your confidence until the end when God has given the victory. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. There's a place for humility. You may have all the confidence in the world, but, you know, I, I'd keep, uh, keep quiet about it until God has granted the victory. God is not about to share his glory with anyone, not even us. Goliath says arrogantly, I am a Philistine, and you are the servants of Saul. Uh, God had warned the nation of Israel in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, and he said, if you want a king like all the other nations, you're going to get a king like all the other nations. And you know what's going to end up? All the kings of the world and all the nations of the world end up with this one major problem. The people of that nation eventually become the servants of the king. Every time they say, we're doing this for your, well, government says, we're doing this for your own good, you end up serving that government. That is the way of all the governments of the world and will be until Jesus Christ comes a second time and reigns on this earth for a thousand years. And it's an interesting passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 8. In fact, in verse 17, you yourselves will become his servants. And they're the servants of Saul. This was their choice instead of having Israel as their sole master. When you and I are serving the flesh, when you and I are serving men and not God is not the absolute one in control, we become the servants of men, and we become as weak as men. We are to follow God all the way. Now, here's the anxiety of Israel in verse 11. And Saul and all the Israel heard the words of the Philistine, and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Here is the army of God. Here is the one to whom all the promises have made, and now they face a situation in which they are panicking 
And it's like the guy gets on a horse and runs off in 40 different directions. Every once in a while, a little rain must fall in our lives and we run into a situation that just sets panic in our soul and in our heart. And, and we who claim to be Christians, who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, panic, what are we going to do now? They had reason to worry, by the way, because of their lack of belief. Saul was a people's choice, like all the nations. And the trial brought out the inner source of the person. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 7, we read, And some of the Hebrews crossed Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. A man forsaken by God vexed with an evil spirit, is in no condition to lead the people of God, let alone face Goliath. Uh, just a word of caution, always. Always be careful who you put into the eldership, the leadership of your body. Very, very important. They must be men of God, and they must be proven of God. Very important. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's look at the choice of God in 1 Samuel 17, 12 to 18. This choice was unnoticed by God originally. In back in, in, in this chapter we read, verse 12, Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judea, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second to him was Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul. But David went back from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem, the Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Now, David's the youngest. As we would say in Nebraska, he's the runt of the litter. He's the last. I could, you know, when I was on a farm, my dad went to a sale barn, and a sow came in, and she had a whole bunch of little pigs, and they sold them. And then they brought in another little pig that was tinier than the rest, and they called him a runt, and they put him up for auction, and everybody laughed. My dad bought him for 75 cents, and before he could leave the place, he had to have him vaccinated for a dollar and a quarter. We raised that pig, and we eventually ate him. <laughs> but he was the runt of the litter. That's kind of the way they figured with David. In uh, 1 Samuel, chapter uh, 16, uh, Samuel is sent to find, a, uh, to find a next king. And he goes to Jesse's house, and uh, we read this. The two oldest, three oldest came by, and look at verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16. I think you could turn back a chapter and not get lost. And the Lord said to Samuel, 
Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. People look at the appearance. You're trying to impress somebody. Uh, you're not going to do it. You're not pressing God. God knows you and God knows me every bit. Read Psalm 139. He knows when we sit down. He knows when we stand up. He knows how many times we brush our teeth. He knows every little deal about us. He knows the favorite place. So let's not try to impress God, okay? Let's just be real. And God will take you where you need to go. I'm absolutely convinced if you walk with God, God will put you where you need to be and you can serve him with all your heart and all the freedom there is. It's not a social ladder that we have to call, climb in the church. There's no place for jealousy. Everybody has a gift that God has given to us, and every gift is unique when you combine it with the personality of that gift. We don't have to be like other people, and we don't really have to impress them as to our spirituality. If we're walking with God, the cream will eventually come to the top. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, we read this. Well, let's go back to chapter 16. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm glad I get to start this early because I normally go to noon, so I got all kinds of freedom. <laughs> In 1 Corinthians 16, 11, we read this. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all, all your children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Got to be. <coughs> it's one of your sons. Bring that kid over here. He's tending the sheep. When he comes at night for supper, he smells like the sheep. And now go to 1 Corinthians 1, 26, 29. This is as true of all of us. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame that which were strong. And the base things of the world and its spies, God has chosen the things that are not so, that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And so God was secretly and in private preparing his chosen instrument. God trains his instruments in secret before he puts them in public. David's thoughts were on God all the time he was attending his sheep. Listen to what the mind of this shepherd, a teenager no less. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the world, in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. In Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling the glory of God and expanses declaring the work of his hands. I love it where I can get up in the morning and I walk out these mornings and I look to the east over here and I see Jupiter and I see uh, Venus setting out there in a the stark black sky. God made them. That's our God. And I see the intricacies of nature, and I realize how God keeps control of all the atoms, all the molecules, all doing what they're supposed to do. And he chose me to serve him. 
And if you were to get a call from the president to serve, you may, you may say that's a wonderful thing, maybe in a different administration, but you might say that's a wonderful thing to do. But we've been called by God, the creator. Every one of you who are saved. And if you're not saved, you need to bow your neck and your pride, admit you're a sinner, and confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That's what you need to do. He chose us not to sit on our blessed assurance of the pews, but to serve him with our whole heart. As one missionary said, what you and I are doing is just paying the expenses for serving the Lord. Look at the attitude of uh, David here. Then Jesse, here's some of the lessons he had learned in solitude, in quietness. Then Jesse said to David his son in verse 17 of chapter 17 of Samuel, Take now for your brothers an ephod of this roasted grain and ten loaves and run to your camp to your brothers. Now, why would God put that in there? I mean, he writing a book, and he puts these little details in there. Interesting to me. Bring, all these ten, bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers. Bring back news of them for Saul and they and all the men of Israel, the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. Now here, here he gives them uh, God, an assignment by his dad, his father, to go to see his brothers. And he tells us how many, uh, what's in these sack lunches. Wow. You know what? Some people just don't want to do the mundane things that God gives us to do. I, 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 you know, that's below my dignity. That's, that's just, uh, you know, I'd like to serve the church, but, you know, to sweep the floor? You mean to uh, mow the lawn? You mean to just pass out bulletins? Why, uh, hey, I, I'm a graduate of this university. At where I work, they bow down to me. I guess the question is, can we count on you to do what the assignments are and to carry them out? David did. Take a lunch to these guys. He was dependable. Look at verses 20 and 22. So David arose early in the morning. He didn't look at, oh, good grief. I had a day planned out there with the sheep. Now I got to go to see what's going on with my brothers who don't like me anyway. David rose up early in the morning, let the flock with the keeper, took the supplies, went as Jay said, commanded him, and he came to the circle of the camp where the army is about to go out into battle array and shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up the battle, army and great against army, and David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle and mine and entered in order to greet his brothers. You know, he took care of business. And, and, you know, that's the way it is. We take care of our business, and if we're faithful in little things, God promotes us. So they, we read the perspective. And as he's walking with them, in verse 23 and following, he was talking with them. Behold, the champion of the Philistine, Agath, came, Goliath, coming up in the army of the Philistines, and spoke the same words, and he heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's coming up? This has been going on for 40 days. What will be, and uh, 
And it will be the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. There's a reward and nobody's going after it. David spake to the men who were standing by him and said, What will be done to the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? People answered in of accord in the words saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. You know what? The living God was a reality to David. Is he to you? Is the living God a mere intellectual concept that lifts it up and we should, wor we should worship him and sing nice hymns and have a nice place to do it in? Or is he actually the living God? He's really living to you and he's alive and vital and he's interested in every part that you do. When something goes wrong, it's the first thing you think of, as James says, that we rejoice. Here's an opportunity in this trial of life to see how God will work it out. Is he that real to you, or are you panic? I gotta, I gotta do something. I gotta call a bank. Gotta call a counselor. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. Who is this person that taunts the army of the living God? Why are we intimidated when laws are made or when things are happening or things are going on? I was here in 2000 or whenever the Y2K thing went on. Remember that? Some of you are old enough to remember. People were panicking, and we even had a guy move out because he was so panicking, the whole world's going to destroy. I said to him, you know what? I don't care if the, every computer in the country goes blank. At least now I can understand life. <laughs> but if the government goes pot, we go belly up, we go broke, we get the wrong person in office, well, so what? God is still God. And God still has a purpose for us. And we need to stand up and we need to be counted like David. I didn't mean to yell. I didn't come here to yell. But you know what, folks? I'm passionate about these things. I think most Christians take God for granted. When I look at the Christian world, I, I think we take them most for granted. I hope you're not one of them. I pray you're not. To, to what's God compared to a nine-foot-six giant? He created elephants. He created the dinosaurs. He created all these things. He's more powerful, and we've seen it every day in nature. He's more powerful than any problem you and I could ever have or the combination of all our problems. Why are we running to everybody else? The first place to run to is the Lord. He is the Lord. He is God. David noticed the trembling in Israel's army, the army of the living God. The only nation that ever was blessed by God, the only nation God ever chose, stands trembling before one single man. 
Years ago, I remember, uh, wasn't even in this place, but years ago, every time we made a board decision, what'll so-and-so think? What'll so-and-so think? And I asked him one day, I said, what? To me, it's kind of interesting. We're asking what so-and-so will think. When are we going to ask, what does God think? We're here to serve God, not ourselves. It's, we ought to be concerned what he thinks. People of God may be low in the eyes of man, but faith always recognizes what God can do and refuses to be intimidated by the devil's army. It was as though David could see the chariots. Remember the story about Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16 and following, where all the army of Syria, they were going to get rid of this prophet, and they all surrounded the house. And the servant of Elijah goes out, and he says, Elijah, we're surrounded by the army of Syria. What are we going to do? So Elijah answered, do not fear. How many times do we read that phrase in the Scriptures, right? We always need it, don't we? Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with, with them. Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots all around Elijah. Elijah. What more do you need? Think you're going down for the count? Think the game's over? You know, sometimes uh, when I was a very young in the pastor, an older gentleman told me, age is no sanctifier of the flesh. And it's true. Sometimes I sit and I think, you know, I'm getting up here in years. I'm over 50. And uh, I started real young, by the way. I'm over 50 and... I look at, the, look at what's going on in the stock market, and I look at this, and I look at that, and I think, I'm going to leave this world with nothing. So what? I have to think. God, will t God brought me into this world, and I didn't have nothing. I didn't have anything when I got into the world. I came with nothing. God took care of me, and will God take care of me when I leave? I'm hoping for the rapture, but if not, then God will take me through the valley. The minute I close my eyes here, isn't that a great hope? He's got his hand out for me. And I may leave broke, but I'll be rich. I'm very rich. I'm going to inherit everything that Jesus Christ inherits. I'm a co-heir. So are you. What we do for the Lord, we got to do here. He was committed. So David said in verse 16, do not fear for those who that are with us, or excuse me, Elijah said that. So when faith is exercised, it brings the soul into direct communication with God's grace, his faithfulness, and his purposes toward his people. David did not see the army of Saul. He, Saul, he saw the army of God. An army that God led through the Red Sea, God led across the Jordan, and God's army who conquered all of Cana. Now Eliab, the older brother, heard him when he spoke to men, and Eliab's anger was burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? 
And with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and your wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. You're just a curious kid. But David said, what have I done? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing as before. Optimism of faith is not understood by people who are not walking with the Lord who are out of fellowship. The world doesn't understand it, and a lot of Christians don't either. Faith has an optimism all of its own. Faith has a conviction that sees more than what's there because it sees God behind the scenes. And one walking by faith has to endure the taunts of the brothers. It's not, it's not easy to take criticism. I don't know anybody that likes it. That is not constructive criticism. That's hard too sometimes. But criticism hard. It hurts. And I've seen a lot of people get out of the ministry or get out of a something in church because somebody looked askance at them. Maybe there, the criticism needs to be dealt with, and sometimes it's nothing more than just to discourage you, or it's nothing more than jealousy, or it's just something that is not really thing. So you've got to even analyze the criticism. David had already known. They're defying the armies of, of the living God. Somebody's got to do something about it. Eliab, why don't you do something about it? Why are you standing here? Why are you just horsing around right here? Why aren't you out in the battlefront? People need to be confronted with that sometimes. Well, I don't like the way this is going. Well, what are you doing? What are you taking care of? Why aren't you doing something? Well, I just want to criticize. That's my gift. <laughs> Why didn't Eliab step up to the plate and go to bat for Israel? Now we see the conflict. In verses, uh, we see the challenger, and now we see the volunteer. In verse 31 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, the words of David spoke, were heard. They told them to Saul, and he said to them, him, David said to Saul, let no man heart, man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go fight the Philistine. Wow. Godly faith is fearless. It's these... No difficulty, and nothing deters it. How do you think some of the missionary things got going? How do you think some of the churches got going? How do you think that some of the people crossed an ocean? How do you think that all of some of this happened? Because men were fearless. I just read the biography of William Tyndale, and he was fearless. Makes me ashamed. Somebody says something, you know, crawl in a hole, can't do that. The height of the man, the weight of his armor were nothing. David's eyes were not on him, but his eyes were on God. David was ready. He didn't wait for a sign for a man of faith. His action was called for as a representative of God. Then he runs into the pragmatist in verse 33. Then Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. Well, he has been a warrior from his youth. Well, that, what Saul said is right. He couldn't fight him on his own strength. 
We can't fight the battle on our own strength. Saul was desperate, but one look at David, he concludes that the teenager is not able to go. Saul was right, but as a child of God, God removes every obstacle. You know what God told Paul? He said to me, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. We don't need strong people. We just need people who are walking with God and he is first in, this, in their life. So, here's the proven test. Now, Paul, David, I don't think, would have bragged about this if he didn't need to. David said to Saul, your servant was tending his sheep in verse 34 when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him, attacked him, and rescued him from his mouth. And when he rose up, I seized him by his beard, struck him, and killed him. Hey, I, I faced a lion and a bear. Lions in those days in the Jordan River Valley were about 300 pounds, about like a bear. I, I, I went after him. He was after one of my sheep, and he was going to get away with it. And I went over him, grabbed his beard, and I slew him with my bare hands. And I did that in the power of God. Little victories here and there set us up for the big ones to come. It's like a line. You just build up, build up, build up, build up, and finally you get the big one. And because you've seen God work in the past, you know God will work in the future. Isn't that great? But David said to Saul, verse 34, your servant was tending sheep. And David said in verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Oh, those are empty words. He wasn't trusting God, he's trusting his armor. We say a lot of glib things as believers, don't we? I'll pray for you. Do you? Do you? Lord bless you. Is that just a glib, pious platitude, or is that a real sincere, sincere deal? The pride of life boasts about its feats, but David had a humble modesty. Saul's response is most interesting. He said, God, go, may the Lord be with you. This was not trust in God, this was trust in armor. Look what happens now. We see what happens in verse 34. David clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with the armor. David girded his sword over his, or his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these things, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He hadn't tried the things, the means. Sometimes we try the things of the world, and they just don't work. You know, the church is not a corporation. The church is a body of the living God, Jesus Christ. And there are things the world does that are successful, but there are things they cannot do, and that is they do not know the joy of being filled with the Spirit and seeing the Spirit of God do things. I want to title this, Doing Things God's Way. We have, a, we have some kind of trauma for everything today. And I remember getting, I'm still in marriage counseling, but getting into marriage counseling, 
And it just amazes me where people go for help. A lady that's having a a problem in her marriage goes to the lady across the backyard fence and talks to her. She's been married umpteen times, and she's given advice. Or they'll go to some other person who doesn't know the Bible at all and get advice. Why don't we go back to this? Why don't we do what this says? I could get angry about that. Go to the Word. What does the Bible say? You mean the Bible has something to say about this? Years ago, I sat in a board meeting, and I said, what does the Bible say about it? Well, this is business. So is this. This is real business. Saul thought David ought to use the world's means, but David is going in the name of the Lord. Faith leaves out God's hands. I've got to wrap this up, people. We see the conflict and the threat in verse 41. Then Philistines came on, approached David with a shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistines looked and saw David, he had disdain for him. He's but a youth, ruddy, with a handsome appearance. And the Philistines said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? You're coming to me with, the, with this? Who do you think I am? And he cursed David by his gods. But look at the assurance of faith. I love this. For I know whom I've believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep me against until that day. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with the Lord, a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. You know what? I come in the name of the Lord, the Creator. I come in the name of the Savior. I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. All that his name involves, here I am, here I come. You can curse me with all your gods you want. They're nothing in comparison to the God that I trust and I believe. Faith honors God, God honors faith. David's response to Braggart's challenge is, I come to you in the name of the Lord. It's a name above all names. It's a kind comprehensible, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God. I'm his ambassador. I could go on. That's sermon number two. We can't. We have to finish the story, don't we? Then it happened, verse 48. The Philistine rose and came, drew near to meet David, and David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into the bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck it the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, and there was no sword in David's hand. I think I missed that verse, but verse says, I come to you. I don't come with a sword and shield. Lord doesn't save with a sword. (laughs) He doesn't save that way. You know, David spent a lot of time in in the back woods, in the back 40, herding sheep. That's a lonely job. He saw the marvels of nature. He communed with God. I can imagine he took his sling. A sling was probably two straps with a leather or wood pouch, 
put a stone in it, and you sling it around real fast, and you let one go, and it, they aim it, and they're very accurate when you get, but you have to practice. You have to practice. How much time do you spend with God each day? Are you in this book every day? I mean, really, are you? I sometimes think we need to read the Bible for sure on Sunday because a lot of people don't read it during the week. This is your meat. This is where you've got to practice. It's fun to come and hear a good, lively sermon or a deep sermon, theological sermon, and do all that, but even if you're preaching a sermon, you need to be in this book every day. You need to bleed this book. And I don't, you may not be an elder and you may not be a preacher, but God has a purpose for you. And you need, need to avail yourself of this book and live it out. So that when the trials of life come or the opportunities to witness, you're on your toes. You're ready to go. Father, help us to be obedient. We confess there's so much of the flesh in what we do, so much the world in what we think, that sometimes prayer is the last resort until we're really caught in a corner do we come out trusting you. Help us to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that we can say with James, rejoice when the trials come for it's an opportunity to see you at work. And Lord, I, I say this with fear and trembling because I realize I may be facing the trial of my life before the day is over. So God, I just trust you and humbly lean on you for all you do and say. Thank you so much for all you are and for this body of believers. Be with their pastor and their leaders. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.